0: Good morning Northbridge. My name is Nick. I'm on staff here in a couple other places as a biblical counselor. And after watching that video with the kids, now I understand why Ray is not here today. Because he does not want to compete with Donald's and Grandpa Morris who won World War II for us apparently. But I'm glad to be here with you. And um, unfortunately, we're going to do a hard shift from levity with Donald's and Taco Bell, sometimes Burger King, to the first point that I want to make. Point that I don't think is going to be very controversial, but it is 2021, so who knows? And the point that I want to make is that it seems to me like our world is in turmoil. Now I'm guessing there's probably three groups of people in here: people that readily agree, people that disagree, or people that kind of agree but just don't like thinking about it. So I'm going to give you three reasons to think about it. The first reason is that we are 18 months into a pandemic, and as a nation have become more and more divided. And unfortunately, I don't think that division has kept itself out of the church. But even in the church, we are divided over things like masks and mandates. Second, there's Afghanistan and everything that's shaping up with that lately. The last one is actually a line from an article that I read that I want to read for you. It says, Australia will need supervised quarantine for some time to come most likely until 2023 I have four things I need to say about that one real quick first this article is not written by the Australian government it was an article appealing to the Australian government for the supervised quarantine second Australia I know is not America although they do sound pretty similar but I know that they are not the same but they have plans according to another article to be building cabins for this quarantine that won't be finished until mid to late 2022. Third caveat, I understand cabins for supervised quarantine is not the same thing as concentration camps. They're high density cabins, which to be fair, are often used for camping. And I don't think you've got a great historic precedent for that kind of thing. But lastly, I wanna reread the last phrase from that first line in the article, most likely until 2023. So, why am I saying this? It's not just to be a downer. It's actually not at all to be a downer, although I realize that's what it is. But the reason is that I have a bit of a concern that within the church, we have our hope set on things getting back to normal or things getting to a new normal. And I just don't want that to be where our hope is, Northbridge. Where we need to be, what we need to do, rather than hope that things get fixed rather than hope that things go this way rather than that way, is that we need to be the type of people who've learned what Paul calls the secret of contentment. We need to be a church that has learned joy because after all, joy is a song that pain can't destroy. Now how? I'm sure there's many ways that we can learn joy, but the one that I want to focus on today is one word and that's equip. We need to equip our church and we need to equip our families now, in order to step back a little bit and tie joy and equipping together, I need to point out a couple things again. Joy is not found in church. Joy is not found in family. It's not found in listening to God's word being preached. Certainly not found at Donald's, although their milkshakes are incredible. But God has told us that the secret of contentment, that joy is found in Christ and in a thriving relationship with him. Now, certainly, without a doubt, church and the word being preached are means that god uses to strengthen our relationship with him but that is not the full picture the full picture which again at the risk of being redundant and i realize is kind of preaching to the choir here at church the full picture does include a local church does include the preaching of god's word but joy is found in a thriving relationship with the lord jesus christ and as we say that which is the basic confession of christians throughout history jesus is lord we ought to recognize as well he is Lord over what joy is and over what our relationships with him should look like and how they thrive. So if you would, turn with me to John 15:11, It's not the main text for the day, but a couple caveats about joy. I had not planned on using the word caveat, but apparently I'm going to a lot today. All right, so I'm going to wait for Phil to get to John 15, and then I'll keep going. No pressure. Great. So 1511, it's Jesus speaking. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Three things in this verse I want to highlight. The last thing, that your joy may be full. What Jesus is talking about is the fullness of joy, which I think is probably pretty appealing to a lot of people. Now jump all the way to the beginning of verse 11, where he says, these things we should ask. What are these things that Jesus says gives us the fullness of joy? Go back into verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I need to distinguish a couple of things here. What Jesus is not saying is that by sinning against him or by not obeying the commands that you're going to lose your salvation or that God's going to stop loving you. What he is saying is something that all parents know and recognize. You set boundaries and parameters for your kids in which they thrive, in which things go well for them, and when kids stand outside of those boundaries, for example, playing in a road, if it happens to be a road that ever gets cars, playing with fire, you recognize the love that you have for them is still love, but it's not very enjoyable for that child in that moment. But that's what he's talking about. If you want God's love in a way that is enjoyable, we stay within the bounds of his commandments. Now, the third thing about this, this passage is found right in the middle of verse 11, where Jesus says that my joy may be in you. And I think that's actually key to this verse. The reason for that being is that I think often when we think of joy, the joy that we are want, the joy that we are looking for, and the, the joy that Jesus has and offers are not the same thing. In order to elaborate on that, will you turn, flip, thumb, whatever, towards Hebrews 12, 1 to 2? All right, this time I'm going to wait for Paige to get there. Paige, can you give me a thumbs up when you're there? Watch out, guys. She's a quick flipper. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Great. So verse 1 starts with, therefore, and we're not going to look at what it's there for, but it's all chapter 11. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason I wanted to look at this verse, and again saying that our joy, what we often are looking for, and the joy that Jesus had, in some instances, could not be further apart. When we think of joy, we often think of ease, comfort, a lack of suffering, whatever is easy and comfortable. But look again at verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, we tend to think of joy as escaping pain. But the joy that Jesus had led him to endure the cross, not to escape it. So if Jesus is the one, who gives us joy, and he is Lord who finds joy, then that is the joy that we are talking about because that is the only true joy there is. That is the joy according to Christ, according to the Bible. So that's what we're after. But now to kind of tie it to equipping real quick. Flip to Ephesians 4. We'll be at 8 to 13. And then we will shortly be done flipping after this one. I'm going to wait for Titus this time. You ready there? I'm going to wait for someone else this time. (laughs) All right, great. So follow along in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it, and I hope you've noticed in the text there's those quotation marks, Paul is quoting Psalm 68. So what does it mean that he had also or, but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth. In 10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Clay, do you have a guess who he's talking about in Ephesians? Who is he that ascended and descended? Do you have a guess? All right. Do you want me to ask someone else? Okay. Clay doesn't, so it's Jesus, right? We get that talks about his um, humiliation, theological word, incarnation, where Jesus came to earth and then ascended. In his ascension, then he gave the Holy Spirit. Some of you might be familiar where Jesus says, it's better that I go than that I stay, which sometimes is pretty confusing. But this verse actually explains it. Paul explains it. Paul, inspired by God, explains it, which means he's right. So let's keep going in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Let me reread that again. And he gave the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and prophets have given us the Bible. So you could say he gave us the Bible, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Well, that's the church. So when Jesus ascended, the gifts that he gave us are the Bible and the church. In verse 12, Paul gives us the reason. And again, he's right inspired by God. In order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he gave us the Bible, he gave us the church, so that everyone here, all the believers, all the Christians in the world, would be equipped to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until, he tells us, until we all attain, in verse 13, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus in his ascension gave us the Bible, the church, to equip us that we might be able to strengthen one another, that we might have the joy that Paul talks about throughout the book of Philippians, that Jesus talks about in John 15, a joy that endures the cross because of the joy set before us. In Northbridge, i got to say, that, that is a huge gift. I know I'm only 30, but out of the churches I've been to, I've not seen a church that focuses on equipping its people more than here at Northbridge. All right, we have been gifted elders and pastor who want to build us up, who want to equip us so that we may be led to joy, a joy that is independent of circumstances. The fullness of joy, regardless of what is happening. And that is a wonderful thing. So there's one way that we're going to be doing this is that we are starting a series today uh, that will be interspersed throughout with the Psalms on the book of Philippians, which is a series in which Ray is not yet slotted to preach in. It's just a bunch of guys from the church. And we're doing that, potentially to give Ray a break, but primarily to equip more people in the church so that we might be a church that is better situated to build one another up into a mature relationship with Christ, that we might be a more joy-filled church. And I'm not sure that there would actually be a better book for doing this than the book of Philippians. In this book, Paul is writing to a discouraged and a divided church. He's writing to them so that that they may rejoice, even in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials, because they are in Christ Jesus and united to him. Paul wants them to stand firm regardless of what comes. Before getting into the book, though, so this is about to be the end of my intro to my intro to the book. Before getting to the book, I want to point out one more thing. You may have noticed Ray has kind of shifted how he's doing slides to just one slide. I'm trying that as well, even though I talked to some people who suggested more slides. So I want to give a little bit of an explanation for why. The reason for that is I want your attention to be on the text in your lap or in your hands not on the screen next to me. And I'm not trying to say that to say that if someone has more slides they're doing something wrong. It's just as I'm trying to be better equipped through our elders, through our pastor, this is one way that I want to try to grow is to help other people grow and focusing more and more on the text. And I'm going to do that by doing the same kind of thing I've been doing, saying I'm going to wait for Paige, Phil, Titus, who probably cheated, and others to get to the text. I'm going to try to draw your attention to the text more and more. And I recognize standing up here that that is certainly hard for some people, particularly if you have children. I have young children. I recognize it's actually easier being here than there with the young kids. But, man, we are glad that they are here. So i want to give just a few potential suggestions. If you have young kids who don't quite know how to read, you could bring different colored highlighters, highlight highlight some of the key words, ask them what color it is, share that word with them, Simple things like that, where what you're doing is your focus on the text, and you're trying to draw their attention there, even if all they can understand is shapes and colors, square it, circle it, uh, triangle it. But do something to help them focus on the text, which in turn, I think, would also help you to focus on the text. If they can read, it gets a little easier. Highlight some of the keywords, underline them, ask them to read it. And I would encourage you to try to do that in such a way where you're actually outlining the passage so that they might not read the entire thing, but they're understanding the main idea. That may be challenging, but hopefully we'll work through the main ideas together. So now the book of Philippians. If you want to turn to chapter 1, verse 1, I've got a few background things to say. Paul knew this church well. We can read all throughout the book of Acts Paul's interaction with this church of primary importance, I think, is in uh, chapter 16, where Paul actually starts this church. He starts the church shortly after being released from prison. Some of you may be familiar with the story of the Philippian jailer. But that guy was probably in this church. Not only did Paul start this church shortly after being imprisoned, but he is writing this letter while imprisoned again, as we'll see later. But in writing this time, Paul is equally as confident he's going to get out of prison. He's just not confident if he's going to get out of prison and return to Christ or return to them because he is facing death. Now, why do those things matter? I'm not much for information for information's sake. I always want information to mean something, to do something. So I do want to clarify why those things actually matter and aren't just Bible trivia things. Before Paul came to Philippi, There were no Christians. There was no church. He started the church. He encouraged the church, He basically kept it running. And now that man, the man without whom there'd be no Christians in Philippi, is in prison and is facing death. One way you could think about that is if the Revolutionary War, right? Try to jump way back there, not in memory, because that would not work, but try to think about being in that situation. If the revolution here, if we, the colonists, whatever, started gaining some traction, and all of a sudden George Washington got arrested and was facing death. You'd think this whole thing's probably done. We've probably just lost. So I want you guys to try to imagine being in a similar situation to this church, divided, discouraged, with trials and suffering. That's part of why I brought up this stuff at the beginning. It's not to argue about whatever. It's just to see that we are actually not that far off from where this church was. Imagine being in a room where all the air just got sucked out and no one knows what to do. Another way you could think about it is think back to 20 years ago yesterday. I don't think I even need to say what happened 20 years yesterday if you're over 25. But you might remember, time seemed to stop, everything stopped, and we didn't know what to do. If you're like me in fifth grade, teacher leaves the room. A bunch of fifth graders in the room, probably not super smart, but we were too concerned to do anything dumb. We had no idea what was happening. The people that they would have looked to in this situation, the person, Paul, he's not there. He's imprisoned. But he does write them this letter. And this letter is what we call the book of Philippians. To encourage them. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, which is the passage for the day. And then we'll dive into it. So let me read it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always and in every prayer of mine for you all, Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense in confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as you're looking at this passage, I want you to notice that there's four pretty distinct points that Paul is making here. Unfortunately for us, it's not three, it's actually four. Now, the first one is pretty easy, right? It's got a heading, kind of takes care of itself. The other three are a little bit more challenging, so I want to explain how, we get, how I get them. For the purpose, again, of making it easier in the future to look at the Bible and kind of better be able to understand what's going on. The first way, the first reason that I think it's three things through verses 3 to 11 is that there's a similar pattern that takes place in a couple of verses. Look with me at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Evelyn, who do you think I is in that sentence? Do you have a guess? Do you know who wrote the letter? Yep, great job. So it's Paul, and then God, and then you. Right, and I think we understand you here is the Philippians church. It's not you there, and so those are are in the church in Philippi. Look then back at, or go down to verse six, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you, right, God is one that started that work. So he's it's again Paul, God, the Philippians, and then in nine, it is my prayer that you're. So it's a similar pattern. Paul has this pattern where he's talking about him in his relationship with the Philippians, but it's always mediated by God in the middle. Another way we can get there is think about the word and, which starts verse 6 and verse 9. Hudson, can I ask you what part of speech and is? I realize this is church. I wouldn't have known until a couple years ago, to be fair. But do you know what part of speech and is, dude? Uh, correct. Conjunction. Fanboys is also correct, but probably also meaningful to the rest of people. Um, do you know what a, can you explain what a conjunction does? Fair enough. Bennett, do you want a chance? Correct. So look at verse 6, and we should ask, what phrases are being connected here? You basically have two options. What he says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, which is an explanation for why he's making his prayer with joy. So it could be that there's two reasons he's making his prayer with joy, because of their partnership and because he is confident that God, who began the good work in them, will bring it to completion. But I don't really think that makes sense. I think what makes far more sense is to say that Paul is thanking God for them in verse 3, and he is sure of something in verse 6, and in verse 9, he's praying something. So Paul's doing three things in this passage, all for the purpose of encouraging them. And the three things that we're going to see in this passage that Paul is doing is he is telling them what he has seen God do in verses 3 to 5, what he knows God will do in verses 6 to 8, and in 9 to 11, what he is praying God will do. So we're going to look at those each in turn. Before we do that, though, let's look at verses 1 and 2 because they're still in the Bible and they're still important, still part of our passage. But 1 and 2 is Paul saying who the letter is to and from. So I'll go back up to verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so it's from Paul and Timothy. It's not an unusual greeting in his day, although like all things, Paul orients it towards God but he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, right? And I think sometimes we tend to think of saints as a separate group of Christian, but elsewhere throughout the Bible, it is clarified. The saints are all those who call on the name of Jesus. The saints in the Bible are just Christians. Christians are saints. Saints in the Bible are Christians. So it's written to all of them. It's not written to a select group. It's not written to just the small group leaders, for example, at the church. It's written to the entire church. But listen to the last phrase in verse one, with the overseers and deacons. He is writing to a church. He is not writing to a loose group of Christians who have a shared faith only. He is writing to a group of Christians who have a shared faith and who belong to the same body. Reminds me of a um, meme, which I think is probably appropriate to quote that I've seen, that says, saying you belong to the universal church and so don't need to go to a local church is similar to saying I belong to a universal gym I have no need to go to an actual gym. That may be the case, but in either case, it's not going to help. We need to actually participate in a local church. But that is who Paul is writing to, the church at Philippi. So let's go then to 3 and 5, where Paul is saying what he has seen God do. And remember, he's writing this to encourage them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always and in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So go back up to three and and again we see that pattern, right? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's again about his relationship to the Philippians, to those in the church, but that relationship is always viewed by Paul through the lines of what God is doing, who God is. And I'm going to say that every single time because that's really important and we need to get that. So Paul is thanking God for them, and he tells us when. So let's keep going in verse three. In all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you all. And then he tells us how, making my prayer with joy. In five, then he tells us why because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The partnership that he is talking about, look at that last phrase, from the first day until now, is not a new thing. It is a lasting thing. Paul is writing to them because they have partnered with him, and it's been meaningful. But I think one thing that we also need to notice about this is that Paul is thanking God for the Philippians' partnership. And I think sometimes that might be a little bit confusing. Like if I were to thank Brad, for example, for playing piano today, that wouldn't make any sense because Brad didn't play piano today. But in Paul's mind, which means in God's mind, God actually is the one who initiated this partnership with the gospel, which is why Paul is thanking God for their partnership. The Bible holds those things in tension uh, regularly and in every place. What they did is because of God, and it is something they actually did, but it is actually something God did as well. It's just a tension that we need to live with in the Bible. But Paul is thanking them, or Paul, rather, Paul is thanking God because God has partnered them, that church, with him in the gospel. So that's the first thing that we see here. Let's move then to 6 through 8. I'm going to read it again. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this is, again, this is Paul encouraging them by what he knows God will do. And what he knows God will do is that he... God, who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that God will preserve them. God will keep them. Now, is it right for Paul to feel this way? I have no idea if that question was in your mind, but apparently Paul anticipated it. So let's go to verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. And then he gives us his reasons. And unfortunately, he does not say, because I'm Reformed, because I'm a Calvinist. doesn't say those kinds of things, although this is certainly one of the things that we would look to and say this is why when God starts a new life in somebody, that life is already eternal and will continue into eternity. But that's not what he says, even if I wish that's what it was. But what he says in verse 7 is, "...because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace." So what does that phrase mean? Partakers with me of grace. Well, it's kind of similar to partners in the gospel. What he is saying is that because of their shared faith in Christ, they share in the grace that comes through faith in Christ. Right? This idea is all throughout the Bible and is really important. It's the idea of our union with Christ. You may have noticed sometimes in the Bible they talk about Uh, God will say that we are seated in heaven with Christ or we've died with Christ or we've been crucified with Christ. That's because not that we are actually physically seated in heaven right now. I don't think I need to defend that point. But it's because through our faith in Christ, we are united to him who is seated in heaven. So it's because of that union that all these things that are true about Christ are true of us, which also means that it's true of one another. Because we are united to Christ, we have a unity together. And that unity does not come from our political leanings. It doesn't come from our uh, culture. It doesn't come from whatever nationality we may be. That unity comes from the shared faith in Christ. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He holds them in his heart because they are partakers with him of grace. He goes on to continue in verse 7, giving two examples of that or two examples. outcomes of that, two things that their shared faith has led to. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He goes on then in verse eight, even more emphatically, which is really hard for me to do. I probably won't, but I'll try. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, you may not be able to feel the comfort and affection, but if you're following along, I hope you can see it in the text. He cares about these people, and he cares about them deeply. And it is because of that that he is confident God will preserve them. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV, but real quick, does anyone have a different translation by chance? Thank you. So, besides the NSV and ESV, besides the NIV and the ESV, Every other one I looked at, which I forgot the NIV, but does not use the word feel, it uses the word think. And I do not like appealing to Greek very much, but every lexicon I looked at says that this word feel is to think deeply or ponder carefully. And I have no idea why the ESV translates it feel, but I do think that's important for us to know because in our culture, feeling and thinking deeply are incredibly removed. And I think it's important to know that Paul is not just saying, because I feel warmly about you, I'm confident that God will preserve you. He's actually thinking, and he understands their union with Christ and the implications that that has, knowing that Christ is already in heaven, and if they are united to him, they will make it there with him. But it's not just a feeling. It is a very thoughtful thing that Paul is doing, and that's why he has the confidence. So in in verses 6 to 8, What Paul is doing is he's encouraging them again by reminding them of what he knows God will do, which is preserve them. So let's go on to verses 9 through 11, where we see what Paul prays God will do. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So again, right? It's my prayer. Prayer is to God, so it's again that Godward orientation. But what is His prayer? Well, let's look at the end, of, in the middle of verse nine. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And I think everyone, probably in the world, is pretty on board that that is a good thing, that their love would abound more and more. But what we need to recognize is that what Paul talks about here, what God wants here, is a particular kind of love. Love that comes, at the end of verse 9, with knowledge and all discernment. What this means is it is a love that knows things and actually discerns or discriminates between what is good and what is bad. He even goes on in verse um, 10 to say, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, this is kind of a weird thing. Love that discerns, love that decides and discriminates between good and bad, But I think, on some level, we all kind of grasp this, right? Um, easiest, Easiest example I can think of. If you knew someone, a good friend, that you cared about who casually mentioned that they wanted to just try meth sometime, it'd be pretty easy to say, I know that's a bad idea. Because I care for them, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to discriminate against that or discern against that saying, bad idea. Where I think, though, that we go wrong a little bit particularly in our culture, when he says so that you may approve what is excellent, as Christians we ought to understand and have no shame or discomfort in recognizing it is God who decides what is excellent. Think back to John 15 and those boundaries where he talks about if you abide, if you uh, obey my commands, you'll abide in my love. That's what we ought to want for people. We ought to recognize and understand when God says, don't do these things, We don't need to feel bad and a bit ashamed in telling people that. We actually can just care for them, knowing that that is a mature love that has knowledge and discernment. And it is actually not loving to just let people do what they want, even at their own expense or at the expense of others. Although I think, to be fair, you could say it is loving. It's just loving yourself at the expense of other people and your comfort. But that is not a Christian thing to do. And that is what Paul is advocating against here. He wants a love with knowledge and all discernment so they can approve what is excellent. Not so they can approve whatever that person wants to approve, but so they can approve what is excellent as God defines excellent. He then gives us another reason in verse 10. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In 11 then, some translations put it with um, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you've been around church, or you're familiar with the Bible, you understand that it uses the metaphor of root and fruit quite a bit. If you're over five, you probably understand what roots and fruits are. I don't really know what fruits are. Every time Julie asks me to get something, unless it's strawberries, I get the wrong thing. I'm not a fruit guy. I've never liked them. But what we need to recognize here is that he actually gives us the fruit and the root in this passage in verse 11 and 10. The root is the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's his faith in Christ. It's the reality that his right standing with God. um, Ellie, I can't see you. Are you here? Ellie, what does righteousness mean? What's right in. Can you say it louder? What's right in God's eyes? That's the shorthand we use with our kids. What's righteous is what's right in God's eyes. What Paul is talking about here is being right in God's eyes. This root is not based on our own actions, our own merit. It's based on the merit of another, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he's saying that is the root, which leads to the fruit, back at the end of verse 10, of being pure and blameless on the day of Christ. So that is what he is praying for. Paul is praying that God would purify them, that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and that all of these things are to the glory and praise of God. So in writing to this church, what we have seen is that Paul encourages them by telling them that God has made them partners with him in the gospel, one. Two, that God will preserve them. And three, that Paul is praying for them that God would purify them, that they may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. So that is the text. Can somebody tell me our Dig and Discover Bible Principles? What is the principle that recognizes the Bible is written for us but not to us, it was written to someone else. So you gotta go from the Bible to them, then to us. Titus, you can just yell it. (laughs) Correct. So we do need to kinda make that hard shift. That was all just about the text, about the Philippians, but what does that mean for us here at Northbridge today? Well, Northbridge, what that means is that we should take heart and be joyful. One, because God has made us partners with the gospel. Two, because God will preserve us. And three, because God will purify us for his own praise and glory. Now, against everything in my nature, I want to try to get a little bit more specific. What that means is that we ought to be people who are encouraged by these three things. God, after all wrote to encourage that people by these things. We should be encouraged by them, but we can also say we should also try to encourage one another in these three ways. So who are those that have partnered with you in the gospel? Thank God for them, and let them know that you thank God for them. Joel, Rick, Phil, Cody, and Josiah. I think I'm not missing anyone. But those are some of the guys that are part of this series in Philippians. And I thank God that we get to partner together in the gospel. All the parents in the room who are seeking to raise their kids, I thank God that we get to partner together in the gospel. I thank God for you. I'm sure there is more that I could say. But church, we can thank God for our elders. We can thank God for our small group leaders. We can thank God for close friends in our lives who encourage us in gospel living and in gospel work. I want to step back for a moment here and say I I probably, not probably, I recognize there may be some people who in saying these things kind of have one, two responses. One might be to get a little discouraged in saying, I wish someone would thank me. Another response could be, I'm not sure who I might thank. Well, if you're kind of on one of those sides, I've got a few thoughts for you that this passage might mean for you or rather, what God might be wanting you to do based on this passage. And that might, be, that might be that God wants you to, for one, become a partner in the gospel, believe the gospel, be united to Christ by faith, so then that you can be a partaker of grace and a partner in the gospel. For some, it might mean getting into the fray of gospel ministry. You could lead a small group. You can ask how you can be more helpful in a small group, what you might do to help with some of the things that the small group leader is doing, you could join a small group. But if that is you, then I'm convinced one of the things that God would have for you this morning is to be more focused on building his kingdom that will last forever than building into things that are temporal and will one day be gone. In saying these things, though, I recognize there's also a bit of a weird tension here that I alluded to earlier. I'm using you a lot. I'm talking about you. But if we think about it, isn't that a bit of our problem that we think about us too much? But that flows sec- perfectly into the second point that it is God who will keep us. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful he cannot deny himself and if you are in christ then you are his and what you do who you are says things about god and he is faithful and cannot deny himself but it is about his faithfulness far more than it is about ours see if we think about the different things that the bible calls us to which it does actually call us to it really does there is a tension those things are too big for us they're too grand for us we are not the type of people who can make a kingdom that will last forever. We are not the type of people that can bring dead sinners to life. We are, not the type, we are barely the type of people that can control ourselves half the time. But that is what is so great about this second point. The question is not, are you going to per- persevere? The question is, can God preserve you? And we have to say with a resounding, yes, he can. Here are a few examples of that. Perhaps you are nervous about COVID and whatever variant we're on now. The question isn't, can you keep yourself safe? The question is, can God preserve you against disease? Maybe you're kind of more on the other side and would say you're more concerned with mandates and executive powers. Can God preserve you against the state? or maybe you're just in a really hard spot relationally or with lots of relationships, or you wish you had certain relationships to even be in a hard spot in, but can God preserve you relationally? The answer to these questions is all yes, but we need to clarify one more thing, or I need to clarify something. In verse 6, when Paul talks about he who began a good work in you, what Paul's talking about is the work of eternal life. And Paul is talking about, he's saying he's about, he thinks he's about to die. He's not saying he's confident God will keep him from death. He's confident God will keep him in death, right? It's not God will keep me from the cross. It's that even if Jesus goes to the cross, God will keep him. That's how he talks in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is not to say that this life is going to be easy, and that's what it means that God preserves you what it means, and what we are promised in the Bible, again, it's not an easy, carefree life. What we are promised is that for those who bear the cross of this life, after this life, there comes the crown of life, which is eternally set with joy, with bliss, and with peace, and that that crown is stored up and waiting for those who love him. Lastly, we can pray for one another and pray with one another, That our love would abound more and more, and that our love would be shaped by God's word and a genuine love for people that wants to approve what is excellent with them. So I'm going to pray that for us right now. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter to the church in Philippi. And Lord, I ask that we would be a church who is growing in being equipped, that we might be able to build one another up to mature manhood and to a mature relationship and walk with Christ, that we might have a joy that no pain can destroy because our joy is not set in circumstances, but that our joy would be set in Christ. And we are confident then because of that, that whatever happens here, we know we will end up being with him And so we can endure whatever this life has to offer for that joy which is set before us. Would you help us to remember these things? Would you help us to be a church that encourages one another, not in our ability to do things, but in yours, that we might be a people who are confident, not in ourselves, but in your ability to keep us. I want to ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.